Hello and welcome to EPR with your favorite environmental enthusiasts, Nick and Laura. On today's episode, Laura and I discuss getting the most out of a mentor relationship. We talk to Kevin Doyle about career development, mentorship, and the future of environmental careers. And finally, rats laugh when they're tickled. <laughs> Just like that. Yeah. <laughs> a tickled rat lets out tiny giggles that are too high for us to hear. But scientists have actually measured their ultrasonic gigs. <laughs> the rats are particularly fond of back and belly rubs. So keep that in mind next time you're hanging out with one. <laughs> oh, man. I got her. <laughs> I have no idea why that tickled me so much. <laughs> I could just picture it. And it was very cute. <laughs> All right, let's let's hit that music. Join the Pennsylvania Association of Environmental Professionals for a follow-up from their February 2022 webinar. Vlad Odorachenko, who is Senior Project Manager for Environmental and Sustainability at ACT Engineers, will present Sustainability 101 as part of the PAEP webinar series on implementing sustainability. The discussion will include opportunities to incorporate sustainable principles into various types of projects, how to initiate a sustainability program at the office, and how to think and act sustainably in everything that we do. Register by July 22nd at paep.org. We appreciate all of our sponsors and they keep the show going. If you'd like to sponsor the show, please head on over to environmentalprofessionalsradio.com and check out the sponsor form for details. Let's get to our segment. One of the things we didn't talk about was that mentors can be people at different ages, different experience levels, different careers, different paths. Doesn't have to necessarily be like your boss or your project manager or your boss's boss. You know, it's uh, almost worth finding people who are in not completely different fields, but who are doing different things too, because they can give you an outside perspective. And, you know, you can have more than one, which is another thing we didn't really mention mm -hmm. in the call. So I don't know what your experience is with that, but in my mind that, you know, and having someone who's younger as well, be a mentor is pretty neat. You can kind of, you get a better understanding of where things are in like, where the future of, of things are going to go when you're talking to people who are younger, who have different ideas and different ways of doing things. Yeah. I think the general consensus is that mentor mentorship is on its way out and it's more mentor mentor relationship. And that's really just seeing the value in each other. So you don't have an okay boomer who's just like, I'm here to tout my knowledge on you. Right. And a young person who's like, you're outdated, dude. I don't care what you have to say, <laughs> you know, but if you're both, asking each other questions and interested in each other. Now I, I will say though, from practical experience, mm -hmm. it's usually a junior looking for help from someone with more experience. Yeah. So yeah. I mean, there is, is, you know, you can't totally discount that. Like someone is the mentee. <laughs> um, not all cases. I have a peer mentor. My friend and I meet every single week, every two weeks so that we can just catch up on our goals and, you know, we mentor each other and it's really awesome. So I highly recommend that for anybody. Yeah. And I think, you know, getting to that, that younger, older relationship, like what I try to say to it is what you said, where it's really more about understanding both people trying to understand each other, not just 
hey, hey, young person, this is what I know. Write that down. <laughs> yeah. You know, this is a relationship, right? I mean, it's like you, you treat it like you would any other relationship where it's you have to put time, energy and effort in. And that goes both ways. Um, That's the biggest thing with the mentors that, you know, whoever would be the more senior mentor in the relationship. You got to show up. I have so many young people that I talk to who have tried, you know, as a career coach in some of my other endeavors, it's my job to help people find mentors. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times they reach out and that person doesn't reply or they said they mentor me, but then they haven't reached out and, or they, you know, they, they cancel. And you're just telling that person they're not valuable to you and they're not important. And that really can make them feel bad and it can turn them off to mentoring altogether. They're afraid to ask another person because of the way they've been treated. So, you know, for me, I'm always urging people to take their mentor role seriously because yeah. it really impacts people in a way that you're maybe not even considering. Yeah. And I think there's always a good balance too, between, you know, the men, mentee, the young, you know, whoever's in that basic role, you know, having some initiative, reaching out. Um, yeah. But it, yeah, the mentor has to be engaged as well. It has, they have to want to do that. You know, not everybody does. And so as long as you don't pretend that you want to do it, it should be fine. But yeah, yeah. It, you're totally right. I have been on the flip side where someone has said, you know, I might be my mentor or I've been paired in an actual program and that person doesn't show up. And, you know, it's so it does go both ways. Yeah. But as the more wise and experienced person, if my mentee doesn't show up, I don't care. Oh, a free hour right. for me. Like, right. you know? exactly. But exactly. Um, I mean, I care, but at the same, but it's like, I'm not going to be hurt by it. But when I don't show up for a mentee mentor relationship, I can be hurting the other person. Right. So you do have to understand your role in that kind of a way. The other thing is I have a ment I have a mentee who is starting her own business. So she's like, she is on it. She's like, can I ask you this? Can I ask you this? Can we have a call? Can we catch up? And she's just taking advantage of it. And that's totally fine. And I can say, you know, I don't have time or we can wait till next week. But that's what I don't see from most people in the mentee sort of position is just because they're always saying, well, I don't want to bother you or, I know, I don't, you know, I and know. it's just like, do it until I say no, do yeah. it, you know? So she'll, and then it's not my job again to tell her, she'll say, Hey, what do you think about these logos? And I go, which one do you like best? Why do you like that one? You know, I'm yeah. not telling her what to do. I'm just saying, what do you think? And letting her like, you know, spread her own wings and figure out how to fly yeah. on her own. Yeah. Use her own brain. Yeah. Yeah. And I think approaching it in a way where it's not just, this person will tell me what to do. It's just a really bad mentality to have because you don't learn anything from it. Neither one of you do really. And so some things that I used to do when I was younger and that I've seen too, is just be like, okay, well tell me how to be better. <laughs> and that's not a good, it's not a good approach. It's not. Try to have some goals, try to have some actual tangible, and you might not know what those are. So then, okay, first question you can ask, okay, I'm trying to figure out my goals. I'm trying to learn where I want to go. And, you know, using a mentor has gone through those things. You know, it's like, hey, you have to get, you have to understand who you are as a person first, right? Like, what do you like to do? What are the things you enjoy? And when you're doing those things, your career path, your job, what you're passionate about, it's much easier because you're already lining up who you are with what you do. And yeah. so, you know, there's lots of stuff like that where like, even when you think you don't know, you can get to an answer. And you can probably do it on your own before you even yeah. talk to a mentor. You just have to, you know, sit down for a minute. Yeah. Your mentors, that's what they're for, to encourage you to validate your ideas, to point you in the right direction. I think one of the other cautions and that, that I see and even see in myself, you have to recognize your own bias and your own judgment 
and not apply that to the other person's situation. So, you know, the same student was a Senate in her college and she was having a problem with another peer on the team. And again, I couldn't tell her what to do. I don't tell her what to say. I don't tell her, you know, I'm not putting my, what would I do on it? What's Mm -hmm. the best thing for you to do? Um, because I don't want her coming back to me and saying, well, you told me to do this and it didn't work. <laughs> right. I don't right. know your situation. I'm decades older than you. <laughs> I can't even imagine what it's like today. Right. So I've learned from from listening and watching to her. And I've been very proud of the decisions that she's made, but I've let her make them on her own. Um, but I still, you know, there's a way that she talks that I wouldn't talk professionally. Right. And I have all the urges in the world to say, you shouldn't say that or you should talk this way. or you should. And I'm like, right. nope, don't do that. Don't do it. Like. That's something she's going to learn on her own. Now, if she sends me something typed and asks me to review how to send this email, I'm certainly going to tell her how to make that look professional. But you know what I mean? Like, so, and that's a self-awareness thing that I think mentors also need to have is just when are you giving actual guidance and when are you putting your own judgments on things that maybe don't matter? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it's like the the world changes, right? Especially the more technologically advanced we get, the, the faster things change. And so what was the norm, what, what was the standard eventually does, you know, fades away and there's a new norm and new standard. So you have to be a understanding of that because, you know, the, there's a, there's new, new workers coming from a new, with a new perspective on things. And when they get in, you know, in charge of companies and making decisions, they'll make different ones. Yeah. And um, yeah, so it's, it's really good to, to have that mentality. Some would say you're pretty good at this thing, Laura, huh? <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty cool. I don't know. I think we're about to talk to one of my biggest fans, which is awesome. (laughs) (laughs) Let's get to it. Welcome back to EPR. Today we have Kevin Doyle, Executive Director of the Office of Career and Professional Development at the Yale School of Environment on the show. Welcome, Kevin. Hey, it's good to be here. Awesome. It's really good to see you again. I wanted to start off right with a super fun fact because I think this is really cool. You were an undergraduate in the geography department at the University of Iowa in 1979. And you were the editorial assistant to Dr. And I'm not going to say this name right. Name right. Raj Rajagopal. You got it right. (laughs) Awesome. Um, On the Environmental Professional, which was an official journal of the National Association of Environmental Professionals. And that was your first job. That's so cool. It was amazing. And Dr. Roger Kapal was an amazing mentor and introduced me to the National Association of Environmental Professionals. And I've known about it and talked to about it to other people ever since. So it was fantastic. Yeah, that's really awesome. I didn't know that. So when I saw that, it was like, wow, this is, I'm so glad you're here with us. <laughs> yeah. Um, you did also mention, though, that he was a mentor and that he picked you out of a number of other interns. So how did that come about? What made you stand out for him to make that choice? So you don't have to ask him that, but I think if I can speak for him, I think what he mainly saw was just somebody who really wanted to learn. Curiosity. I was that student who stuck around after class to ask more questions. I always wanted more office hours and, you know, would like trail him down. No, no, I just have another (laughs) question. And so I think he just felt like that curiosity was something that he wanted to reward. And he had a a graduate assistantship and he was nice enough to offer it to an undergraduate. So it was good. So I didn't have to work in food services. (laughs) (laughs) Gotta love that. 
you're now on the other end of that where you're mentoring and doing a career advice and everything for other people. So how do you feel after all these years of experience and having been a mentee, people can be better mentors today? So it's a really great question. And um, there's actually been an explosion of interest in even what the word mentor means. Mentoring shows up in things for at-risk youth. Mentoring shows up in mental health programs. Mentoring shows up in you know working with high school students. And so here at a graduate school, you know, the, the Yale School of the Environment is only a graduate school, no undergraduates. I think for us, mentoring means just a person who is interested and willing to provide assistance to another person based on what they think they want. I think, you know, the definition of bad mentoring is I'm a wise person and you're (laughs) going to sit at the feet of the master and learn from, you know, learn from me, you know, based on my experience. And as long as you would just listen to my stories, you'll be well off. (laughs) That's like the anti-mentoring, you know, real mentoring is getting to know a person first through questions and, you know, inquiry and listening and then finally saying, how can I help? And I think when, when we hear back from our graduate students in their engagement with alumni or people who worked with them on a summer experience or classmates, that's what makes the definition of the so-called good mentor. But that means that the mentee has a responsibility to know what they want, to know what they want from if a mentor is going to say, listen, this is an open space. I'm asking you, how can I help? You need to know your answer. What do you need? And I think a lot of people who enter mentoring relationships as a mentee expect the mentor to fill that space. Yes. And so there's this moment when you kind of need to figure that out. Absolutely. hundred percent. I always say, the mentor's role is to listen first and then ask questions. And the mentee's role is to ask questions first and then listen. So, <laughs> which I yeah. think just sums up what you just said. So for um, any young persons listening who are looking for mentors, what kind of questions should they be considering or thinking about asking? So it's interesting. I think a lot of people who go looking for someone that they call a mentor sort of send a, a blanket request out and then whoever first says yes, that becomes, you know, someone who is a mentor. And I would encourage people not to do that, mm-hmm. to actually go after the person that you think will probably say no, because, you know, oh my God, why would they want to help me? You know, they're so busy, um, et cetera. But that's exactly the person who's probably is the person you want to ask, but just don't use the word mentor too early. Will you be my mentor? You know, well, I don't even know you. You know, <laughs> right. so let's first of all get to know each other a little bit. But if there's somebody who is showing up in the media or showing up in your life or showing up in your work as, oh my God, if I could do what you're doing, I would really love that. You you seem to be walking a path that's something like the path that I imagine for myself. That's the person. Reach out to them. Yeah. Um, start a relationship with something small, you know, just a piece of advice, and then ask, can I stay in touch with you? And over time, 
Those are the kind of people who can become true mentors. Those other people are just friends, allies, helpmates, et cetera, but they don't really rise to that level of mentorship. So pick the people that you think are walking the path that you want to walk and all will be well in the end, because even if they have to say no, they know somebody else who can serve that function. Yeah, I think, I mean, it's, it's absolutely great advice. And I think I literally just said this yesterday. I'm like, I mean, if you don't know the person, that's okay. A lot of times, even someone who's super busy enjoys giving back. Like a lot of people love to be asked why they're, how did you get to where you are? But like that first step is really hard, right? Like reaching out to the unknown. How can people kind of break that thought process? It's a good thing to do, but how do people actually do it? So one of the best and easiest ways to do it is to not do it yourself, but to ask for help on that step. So you probably know somebody who knows somebody who knows the person that you eventually want to reach out to. And it's a reasonable assumption that just calling out to somebody blind on email, you're probably right. Follow that basic idea that probably you're, you're correct, that that's not going to get you that next step very quickly. So if you find somebody in that person's network who can say, hey, you know, I know this younger person and they're looking for an opportunity to learn from you. You know, I wonder if I could connect the two of you. You know me, I'm not going to do that 4,000 times. You know, I'm not going to inundate you. I've picked this individual person out of the crowd and hope that you might be able to spend some time with them. They will almost always say yes in support of someone who is a friend. So you're, you're taking advantage of that relationship instead of trying to form one on your own with someone who is rightly very busy and has a lot of other things going on. So use their friends to make that connection. <laughs> That's perfect. But switching gears just a little bit here, you were also the president of the green economy. So what type of work did you do there with that company? So I'm not doing that anymore. I formed my own consulting firm back in 2007, and I closed it down in 2019 to come and take this job at Yale. But when I was working in private practice, and I named my sole proprietorship Green Economy. I worked in three different areas. I worked in coastal management in supporting coastal CZM programs, coastal zone management programs, and others. I worked in workforce development, you know, as a you know, continuation of the work that I had been doing with universities, um, working on you know helping people put together workforce development. How do we recruit talent? matching together universities with key employers. And then the third area that I worked in, um, which was also really a wonderful area, is in the deployment of clean energy towards climate change uh, mitigation. So clean energy deployment, coastal management, and workforce development. And when I closed it down, I made a list of all of my clients that I worked with, and that's posted on my LinkedIn. So I had something like 50 clients by the time I was done. And it was hard to give up all the good and bad things about working for yourself. But in the end, I feel like working here at Yale is really the perfect capstone to a long career. 
Yeah. What made you switch? What made you decide to give that up? So I got recruited. I had done a job for the Yale School of the Environment as a external consultant to come in to do a, a review of some of their programs. And at the end of that review, I, as all good consultants do, I made a pitch, I made my recommendations. And soon after that, I got a call, which was something along the lines of, hey, you talk a big game, you know, you, you, you <laughs> seem to be, you know, like, you look at all that I know. Here's the things that somebody else should do. Here's my recommendations. And they said, maybe if you're interested, maybe you could come and actually implement these recommendations because there's some changes here happening anyway. And I thought, you know what? I cannot turn my back on that challenge. So here I am. Wow. So how did you get the uh, initial, how did you get to work with them initially anyway? How did you get that piece? So I think like all good sole proprietors, you learn very, very quickly. You know, when you first start out as a sole proprietor, you think that your content knowledge is going to be, drive people to you. You know, Mm -hmm. like you're going to be batting potential clients away. Like, oh, I'm so busy, you know. But you learn within about 40 minutes that that's not the case. (laughs) It's exactly the opposite. You need to knock on doors, knock on doors. Hi, do you need any help? You know, hi, is there anything I can do for you? You need to call on your existing clients, even if you only have three of them to say good things about you. You need to use all of that. I think about a third of the time of a sole proprietor is spent in marketing um, themselves. And so I knew some people through my previous work before 2007 throughout the higher education community and including some people at Yale. And I just knocked on some doors and got a yes on that particular project. Heck yeah, that's great. Uh, but <laughs> do you miss the marketing side or any other aspects of consulting? I miss the work itself. I miss the final projects after you finally get a yes. Like, yes, we'd like you to write our strategic plan. Yes, we'd like you to lead a stakeholder engagement facilitation. Yes, we'd like you to you know do an examination of whether our efforts to recruit New people for our wind energy company are aligned with what people want. Yes, we'd like you to come to our university and give a talk and lead a week long workshop. I miss the, what happens after the yes, <laughs> but I don't miss any of the rest of it. Taxes, <laughs> uh, forms, uh, oh, yeah. you know, uh, sending invoices that never get paid. <laughs> you know, I, I don't miss any of that marketing, but the work itself. Yeah. And the ability to come in and help somebody as an independent consultant and then have them say when you're leaving that, you know, thumbs up, thank you so much. I really miss that. Yeah. Uh, that's a lot. I mean, uh, genuinely, that's the, the work is really re- rewarding then. It keeps you going, I guess, for so long. Yeah. The students here, I think... Almost everyone in the world of higher education, career development, especially at the graduate level, the ones who decide that they really like it, almost to a person say, it's because of the students. Many of these students are going to be fine without somebody like me. I mean, they're really, they're brilliant, they're hardworking, they're passionate, they're curious, they're incredibly skilled. And so working with people like that every day 
on things like ecosystems management, biodiversity, climate change mitigation, business and the environment, ESG. Doing that every day, it's like a candy store. It's, it's a fantastic job. And I think my counterparts at places like Duke and Brand in Michigan, you know, in Columbia would probably say exactly the same thing. That's awesome. You can hear your passion for it. And I know you've been doing careers, environmental careers for a long time. I, I uh, literally wrote the book on it <laughs> twice. <laughs> exactly. Thank you. <laughs> um, if you could like, after all these years, and like you said, most of the students will, they'll figure something out, but what is maybe the top piece of advice or advice or one thing that rises up that you find yourself saying over and over again? Thanks for that question. Because it gives me a chance to, I, I had a feeling that you might ask a question sort of like that. So I really wanted to prepare to make sure that what I'm about to say doesn't come across as, you know, oh, gassy rhetoric or follow your passion and you can do it, um, <laughs> you know, et cetera. But I'm going to say exactly that, um, that if you care deeply about achieving an outcome in the world, hold on to that. Because ultimately, that's what employers really want. They want somebody who wants to solve problems, not diagnose them, not contribute to some granular assistance for it, but people who want to make an impact in the world through their work together with other people. And if you know what that thing is, if you know what that outcome in the world that you want to achieve is, where you finally end up, whether it's in the private sector, the public sector, the nonprofit sector, the academic sector, or what the job box is, whether it's called analyst or program manager or whatever, that's going to turn out over the course of a long career to be less, less important than whether you can measure the success of your work by the outcome for people in the environment. That's why we do this work. Not to get a job, not to get advanced, not even all the money is very important. And we talk about that a lot that, you know, <laughs> own your desire for to make a living. We don't want you to sacrifice that part of yourself more than you need to. But really, when it comes to the end of that kind of obituary moment, what you're going to ask yourself is, did it make a difference? Did it matter? Can I say that because I was on the planet and I did this work, something got better for people, for ecosystems, for wildlife, for conservation, for environmental protection? So that's my advice. Find out what that thing is you want to do that is an outcome and you'll be well. Love it. That's perfect. Okay, I think we're done here. Um. Yeah. <laughs> I got to go do some stuff now. Yeah, right. <laughs> so Global Environmental Careers, that is a book that was published a long time ago and then republished. How did you come up with the idea for that and then make it come to life? It was, a, it was kind so, of a big deal. Yeah, so it was not my idea. But, you know, I like to believe that my contribution to it was, you know, a significant one. So. Years ago, I was the national director of program development at a national nonprofit that doesn't exist anymore. It was called the Environmental Careers Organization. 
And we organized employer-paid internships and fellowships for environmental college students around the country. We had offices all over the country. And so one of the things that we decided that we wanted to do at Environmental Careers Organization was also do things like conferences, workshops, and a book. So we approached Island Press in Washington, D.C., which is a well-known environmental press, and they liked the idea. And so as an organization, we created the first book, The Complete Guide to Environmental Careers. And then over the course of time, I inherited the management of that project in my role as National Director of Program Development. And we produced the second one called, you know, appropriately, The New <laughs> a complete guide to environmental careers. And then we did several others. We did four in all. And um, I think that it's probably time for another one. And I'm hopeful that if there is going to be another one through Island Press or elsewhere, that I might be able to contribute to either editing it or producing it or at least contributing to it. Because it is definitely time in 2022 for a new complete guide to environmental careers. Yeah, things have changed a bit, I think, since the last one that came out. I'm going to steal the spotlight from Laura here for a second, because I think that lends to one of our questions later on as well. But I mean, I think you're right. I think there is a really, it's a good reason to start a new book now. But, you know, where do you see, because I think there's a lot of different stuff coming up. You know, wind energy is really starting to take off. PPOS, PPOA stuff is starting to really get into the national spotlight. So. What are you seeing as those possible future job trends uh, within yeah. the environmental field? So in keeping with the, the answer to the advice question, environmental careers are driven by four things. One of them, they're driven by the existing system. So, for example, you know, you know, at the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, we have Office of Water, we have offices for toxics, for waste management, for air quality. And there's the National Park Service and the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service and the Army Corps and et cetera. And so baked into the cake are the already existing regulations, systems, permitting, you know, all of that. And that system needs to be staffed and managed, et cetera, in its current responsibilities. So that's one place that environmental jobs and careers trends come from. So the second thing, place they come from is people who want to go above and beyond the minimum. They want to go beyond whatever regulations, requirements, you know, permits. They want to say, how can we be better than the norm, better than the average, better than the, you know, the bar that's the limit. And new jobs come out of that as well. And so one of the things I think happening, you know, in that second space are things like what's going to happen with environment, social and governance with ESG? Is that going to be greenwashing? Is it going to be the new thing? Is it going to be a source of amazing advancement beyond the norm? Or is it going to be something other than that? What about new definitions of sustainability? Where is that going to come from? What about the decision we're going to make as a globe and as different organizations and countries and cities and counties 
about whether we're going to shift from a focus on climate change mitigation under kind of a despair idea towards, you know, we're going to give up. We're going to move toward adaptation only. Where's the balance between mitigation and adaptation? Where's that going to go? So that's the second thing. So the third thing is where new things come from is people who want to go even beyond that. They want to envision an entirely new system of what? New system of capitalism, new system of social democracies, an entirely new clean energy economy that goes beyond the current structure and even the kind of first out of the box new ideas. Just totally transformational, you know, thinking. So that, as you can probably imagine, is where a lot of people would like to find a job, right? They already can imagine that new transformation. But as you can imagine, there's not many jobs to do that because the money isn't flowing to that yet. And then finally, there's a fourth category that I think a lot of us in the environmental world are not engaged enough about, and that is transformation that comes only through transformations in technology. Technology sometimes makes things possible that very quickly become something that could become a norm if only the people who were environmental professionals could even begin to grasp what that technology (laughs) could do for them. And so I think, for example, as we learn what drone technology could do for environmental, the assessment of environmental problems, where they are, drones can do something so cheaply and so quickly that I think now we have availability to have data that if only the first three parts of the system could know how to use that data, we could advance more quickly. So what I try to tell people is that if those are the four drivers where jobs come from, And if you want to work in section number three or section number four, you still need to get a job in section number one or section number two. So here's where all of that long story leads. You need to be able to live simultaneously in the world as it is (laughs) and be a change agent to make the world as it is move toward the world that we need to be. You can't necessarily think you're going to be at a job to do what the world really needs, you know, in this transformational future. So join the system, somewhere in the system, sustainability offices, federal government agencies, state, local, nonprofits, you know, get into the game somewhere because those future needs are going to eventually end up on the task list of the current system. And if you're there instead of someone else, you can make that transformation happen more quickly. Uh, I, yeah, I 100% agree with that. And I think having that um, that institutional knowledge, that, that's what you're going to get from being in the system. You understand how the system works. It's almost like... you can, how it doesn't work. Yeah, exactly. And you can see the parts that work. You can see where there's needs for improvement. And then you can go to that next spot. That's a really good, really good way of putting that. Um, <laughs> so, of course, another <laughs> seamless segue... To another fun fact about you, you and your wife like to sing in groups. So as someone who loves to sing randomly for no reason whatsoever, I'm totally on board with this. So what kind of singing or songs do you guys do? What, what is it? I'm sorry, I don't know if I understand the question. 
So oh, like, they're singing. My singing. Yeah, you're singing. Hello. I should have sung. Both my wife and I, we love singing. And we especially love group singing. There's something about joining other people in song that is just so uniquely human. I mean, something happens when people sing together. And especially if they have a really group, you know, good leader who knows how to help amateurs who did not have to audition and are not necessarily the best singers in the world, but knows what kind of things that can bring out. I think when people sing together, they just experience joy. And hopefully the audience will come along with them. Even if the, the sound emerging from the stage is not always the most melodious as, as you might expect. My wife, Deb Mapes, and I, we love that. Yeah. So is it just, so what are you singing? Is it just uh, random stuff? Is it there? Is so there... We join based on what's available. So um, they don't always sing exactly the, the songs that we would choose for ourselves, but we've joined groups that are more about pop music, folk music, Broadway show tunes. And we've also joined groups that are more about sacred music and music that's specifically written for choral amateur groups. So we've been involved in the whole spectrum. Oh, I got that's you. Awesome. Well, it really is. I mean, the I know, Nick, could you imagine you and Lauren going out singing together? No. <laughs> yeah. Never do it. Not I think that's pretty no. special. I me yeah. neither. Like no. I would I would love to. I'm 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 ready to join this group right now. I'll do that. That's no problem. Well, well, I can guarantee you that if, you know, whatever geographic area you live in, whatever city or region you live in, if you just go into Google and put group singing or chorales or choruses or choirs, just a huge number are available everywhere. So here in Southern Connecticut, there's a whole bunch of them. That's really fun. Do you have a song that kind of like you looked at it and you were like, this? No, no, not this song. But then you just sang it and you were like, oh, my gosh, I love this. Yeah. So this is one that is not going to be a popularly available. I don't think it's a, a, a song title that people will go, you know, oh, I heard that on the radio or, you know, whatever. It's a song called Sing Gently. And um, we sang it in the in the Shoreline Chorale, you know, at our last concert. And at first, I didn't like it at all. But hearing a group of, you know, tenors and basses and altos and sopranos sing it together, it was beautiful. Yeah, that's the joy oh, of Sing music. gently. Yeah, sing gently. That's, that's the joy. How many of you are there? What's that? How many in the group at any time? So the group that when, when Deb and I lived in the greater Boston area, which we lived in for a long, long time, we sang in a group that had 200 people in it. Um, wow. The group that we're in now is about 60. That's oh, still a lot. That's a lot, yeah. Yeah. Does that help you hide some of the, uh, let's say, less <laughs> talented? It, 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 of which, you know, <laughs> I am. <laughs> yes, um, yes it definitely. The more voices there are, the more you can assure that the overall quality of the sound will be, you know, will be good. And those of us who are maybe a little off key um, are not heard as well. <laughs> it's, it's brilliant. It's a brilliant strategy. I love that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so do you guys, um, do you have anything fun 
trips or anything environmentally fun you guys are doing for the summer or, or planning for the future? So unfortunately, if, actually, this is a sore spot um, right now because a bunch of people on my team here at Yale, one retired, one is leaving to take another job, and one is on medical leave. So unfortunately, vacation time is not great this summer. However, Deb and I live in Old Saybrook, Connecticut, which is right on the Long Island shoreline. And so we kind of live in a vacation town. And so um, we're a 10-minute walk from our house to the Long Island Sound and to the beaches. And so I have nothing to complain about. We we, we live in vacation land. (laughs) That's pretty great. So, I mean, we're coming to the close of the end of the show and we always like to make sure that, you know, is there anything else you'd like to talk about that we didn't ask you? I think the one thing I'd like to leave people with is this is a moment of real self-searching for the whole environmental professional community. And I know that it's a cliche to say we're at a turning point and, you know, um, Probably people said that in the 70s. People probably said it in the 1890s. <laughs> you know, it, it, people always believe that this moment is different than the previous moments. You know, we need to make choices. But it just feels to me like our scientific knowledge of the speed and scale of activity for protecting natural ecosystems and for reversing the trends of global climate change require us to ask whether our current work, our current systems, our current structures, our current organizations for environmental protections, many of which were set up, you know, what, 80 years ago, 50 years ago, 40 years ago, whether they're really up to the challenge. And if they're not, can we admit that? and do something about it fast enough and at a scale globally that meets the challenge? Or are we going to 10 years from now be just simply diagnosing what we lost while we failed to ask ourselves that question? And I think universities, like the major graduate schools, like like the one here at Yale, We are trying to give our students, our graduate students, the space to prepare themselves for the jobs as they actually are, but to engage with the current leaders about this question. And I think the jury is out on whether we're going to meet the challenge. But I don't think there's anyone in the leadership of the environmental community at consulting firms, at you know, at state and local and federal agencies, at, at global institutions like the UN and the World Bank, I don't think any of those people left to their own devices when the door is closed and they they don't have to be cheery bright for the for the cameras. Mm-hmm. I don't think there's any that are not seriously wondering: Will we do it? Will we meet the challenge? And I like to think the answer is yes. And I like to think especially that organizations like the National Association of Environmental Professionals are a forum for asking and answering that question. Yeah, good stuff. I think it's always good to end with a call to action, right? Okay, well, if anybody wants to chat with you about careers or how to change the world, how do they get in touch with you? 
So uh, I think the best way is by email. As much as I love LinkedIn and my, what, you know, 3,700 people that are linked to me on LinkedIn, um, I think direct email is probably easiest. I'm kevin.doyle at yale.edu. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. This has been great. That's our show. Thank you, Kevin, for joining us today. Please be sure to check us out each and every Friday. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review. See everybody. Bye.